And all God's people said, amen. Well, I was thinking uh, this week and even this morning, kind of what are some of the ways that we as a you know, church and, and just people even around our, our country and quite frankly around the world deal with this coronavirus and the isolation. I know some do well with it and some not so well. And each family kind of deals with things uh, in their own way. And uh, I got this photo from Don Teodoro. This is how Carol Teodoro is dealing with the uh, coronavirus. This is Carol, as you can see here, at the grocery store. Now, this was a bad hair day for Carol, as you can see, because she's wearing the, the bag over her mask. And you can tell by the way that it's standing that that is actually Carol. And so Carol deals with this whole coronavirus by uh, putting on trash. That's, if you can see it, I don't know how well the picture is online, but that's actually like a trash bag she's wearing and another plastic bag. I can't read what that is. But she doesn't want to think it's her. She wants to tell you that it's Don because she took Don's wallet. But that's actually Carol Teodoro. Had a bad hair day, so she put the... the the bag over her, her head. So this is how Carol deals with, with life now with COVID-19. And look at this lady here, look at Carol, not too impressed with that and so on. Uh, Kristen Hauser sent me this picture. Uh, this is Joe at the grocery store, and he likes to dress up as a horse. I don't know why, but that's what he does. And look, again, look at the reaction of this guy. I wonder what he's thinking. But that is Joe Hauser at, at the grocery store. Was that Fred Meyer or is that uh, where? Walmart. That's, that's him at Walmart. Okay, yes, that's, that's him at Walmart. And that's a special, like, it's like a biohazmat suit or something like that. But um, that is, is Joe Hauser. And so that's kind of the way that, you know, that Carol Teodoro and Joe Hauser kind of dealing with this, uh, the coronavirus. Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about how we as a Stuffelman family are dealing with it. Um, you know, you have all this time. I'm sure, assuming some of you, like, or maybe all of you, are doing a lot of chores around the house, early spring cleaning. We've got the windows done and some landscaping done, yard work done, and so on. And so you have a lot of free time, and either you're on your phones, or maybe you're watching TV or reading a book, and I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time watching TV, and so I called the kids together, and we decided to play a card game called Euchre. Now, I don't know if you've ever played that, that game before, but um, you have typically two teams of, of four. So there would be like, for example, it was David and I versus Lydia and Mark. And you go up to 10 and you can score as many as one or up to four points in a hand. Typically, it, it's one point. And you lay down your cards and you, you can trump a certain uh, card and win the hand. Anyways, that being said, a couple nights ago we played, and, and Lydia was not too uh, experienced in the game, but her and Mark beat David and I in that first game. And we were having fun, and it was a good thing, and, and Lydia really enjoyed it, and so she was kind of gloating that they had beaten David and I. The following night, uh, we played another hand, and uh, this time, David and I won, which is kind of expected because we're the more experienced players. But Lydia wanted to play this, this second game the following night, but this time she was somewhat frustrated. 
And so last night was the final game. Best out of three. We had won one, David and I, and Lydia and Mark had won a game. And as it began to unfold, like any card game, David and I were not getting good cards. And so we got down five to one very early on. Now, it's important that, that we understand and know what the truth is. I know a number of you, like me, I think this latest statistic is 80% of the population just doesn't trust the media in presenting the truth. So what I'm about to speak to you is the truth. David and I went on such a run that we, I think, won the rest of the points and beat them 10 to 5. 10 to 5 or 10 to 6. I mean, David and I destroyed Lydia and Mark completely. Emotionally, psychologically, we watched them give their cards, their last cards, in utter defeat. And it was just fun to play with them. Lydia clearly wasn't happy. In fact, she may be depressed this morning still. And so if you'd like to send Lydia a, a message of, of hope and of a consolation and encouragement, please contact me. I can give you her cell phone or her email, and you can comfort her because it was a beatdown of epic proportions. And so I just want to give you a heads up and kind of, this is kind of what we do as a family to kind of cope with all the isolation that goes on from the coronavirus. And I'm sure that my daughter will be happy when I go home this afternoon to see me. Now, unfortunately, I have a sermon to preach. And so I want to get into this this morning. If you get your Bibles out, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 to 23. And I want to warn you that there's a section of this sermon that it was incredibly difficult for me to interpret. I actually practiced part of it with the boys, and it didn't go well, so I have to really tweak it. But I'm excited about this sermon and the whole idea of uh, the impact that the resurrection had upon angels. But in Ephesians chapter 1, there's a prayer that Paul prays, and we'll look at verses 20 to 23. But Paul has, is basically saying to the Ephesians that he wants them to know just how rich they are in Jesus Christ. And he wants them to know, you know the glorious inheritance of the saints, the hope of their calling, and also the surpassing greatness of the power that is available to them in Jesus Christ. And he goes on to specifically describe that power. We pick it up in verse 20. This power is what he worked in Christ... When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This morning, I want you to see just how the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects angels. Now, in order for us to kind of understand this, we're going to do a little bit of theology on angels. And basically, it's going to be a really quick summary, but there are basically two kinds of angels, as most of you, if not all of you know. 
there are basically holy angels, I'm going to call them, and fallen angels. And so this is kind of our study on angelology, the study of angels. So you'll be able to follow along here on the uh, screen here. But basically, there are holy angels, and holy angels are servants of God, just so you know. Psalm 103 talks about, praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts. Now you see this, you his servants who do his will. Holy angels are messengers. You may remember that the message that the angels pronounced at the birth of Jesus Christ, the messages that they gave to Daniel in the Old Testament. There are messengers, and they serve God. But did you know this, that angels are also servants of the saints, of believers? It says there in Hebrews 1.14, and we'll look at this passage in a moment in greater detail, speaking of angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve who? Well, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is us. It is saints. So holy angels serve God, and they serve saints. Now, on the other side of that coin are fallen angels. And what do we know about fallen angels? Well, we know that sometime prior to Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, that there was this war that took place in heaven. And Satan and some of the angels warred against God, and they lost. They rebelled against him, and they were kicked out of heaven, and they became fallen angels. We can see this in Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Let me read this again for us all. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. You'll understand who the dragon is in a moment, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven, and that's key. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Scripture tells us that we believe a third of the angels were with Satan, and they were cast out of heaven. Now, I want you to understand that there are also, I'm going to go in a little bit more in depth on angels and fallen angels, different kinds of angels and different ranks of angels. Now the phrase, go back to Ephesians 1 in your Bibles, Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, you'll see the phrase, all rule and authority and power and dominion. Again, he was raised from the dead, that is Jesus Christ, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are simply titles and ranks of angels. In this context, it's evil spirits. So, for example, again, you can look in the screen here or follow in the Bible, but rule is this word that basically dictates that these are the primary leader-type angels. They're the rulers. The word authority is where we get the Greek word exousia, and it refers to delegated authorities. You've heard me say this before, just to give you an idea of the, the power of angels, all of us miss sports, I think most of us do it at this time in our lives, because they aren't there. But in the game of football, the most powerful sport that there is, you have a lot of powerful people. You have people that have a certain kind of power, 
and they may be 6'3", 245 pounds, can run very fast, and they're called linebackers, and they tackle uh, the running backs and other people and so on in the foot game of football. They have power, but the most powerful people on the field are your 145-pound men dressed in black and white striped uniforms. They're called umpires or referees. See, a linebacker can take a, with the power they have, a running back down, but an official can kick any player out of the game. They have what is called exousia power, the officials do, delegated power. So it's like an authority or power with a badge behind it. And that is a, a, a type of, of angel. They have a certain amount of authority that has been granted to them. Now you have the word power. It's another word. It's the, where we know the word here from Bible Chapel. It's the word dunamis. It's a miracle-working power. And it means an inherent power. So, so some angels, some evil spirits have an inherent power. And I'll explain it in a moment here more effectively. And then the Greek word dominion, which means Lord or mighty one, as you can see. Now, let me go back to the word rule. This basically refers to a, a high order of demonic fallen angels that assist Satan in his warfare against the saints. Uh, the word authority there, again, it's a delegated authority that is given to some fallen angels. The, the power, the ranks of angels that have the power, they use that inherent power effectively. Just as we have this through the Holy Spirit, dunamis power within us to effectively do miracles, vice versa, fallen angels have this power that's been given to them, and they use it very, very effectively against the saints. And, of course, dominion is a reference to just evil angelic powers. Jewish writings, by the way, they used to designate angelic powers by their ranks. So think of all these rule and authority and power and dominion as just the ranks and titles of angels, of evil spirits. Now, according to Ephesians 1.21, when Christ was raised from the dead... It says he was seated at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above all fallen angels. Everything, the scriptures say, is subject to him, including angels and fallen angels. Now, what are the implications of the resurrection on holy angels? This we're going to look at and I want you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's talk about some resurrection repercussions on holy angels. It is here that I want you to see, this is what I tried to explain to my sons, to Mark and David, earlier this week, and it was difficult for me to explain to them. So I had to rework this sermon and explain this in chapter in a very or more understandable way. I read of theologians that spent, you know, so much time just interpreting, trying to understand and explain Hebrews chapter 1. It's a pretty complex uh, passage of Scripture, so I ask for your patience as we dive into this. But real quickly, just a brief outline of this chapter, because we will look at most of the chapter. 
the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the Son of God is superior to the prophets and to angels. In the first three or four verses, he talks about how the Son is superior to the prophets, that God spoke, as you'll see, no longer through the prophets, but through his Son. He will go on to talk about how the Son is superior to angels. And in verses 5 through 6, he's going to say that the Son is superior to angels because of his position. The Son is the begotten of God. All the angels are commanded to worship him. Then in verses 7 through 12, he's going to say that the Son, or show that the Son is superior to the angels by his nature. The angels will be described as winds and flaming fire. But the Son is described as having an eternal throne, a kingdom. He will love justice. He is the creator. And then finally, the Son is superior to angels in his role. He sits at the right hand of God, whereas angels are servants, ministering spirits that we just looked at, to serve those who will inherit salvation, which is the saints. So let's begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, we're beginning to see, again, the Son is superior to the prophets. Now, watch this. Verse 3. After making purification for sins... He set down the right hand of the majesty on high. What is the phrase after making purification for sins mean? What's it referring to? That's referring to his death on the cross. After his death on the cross, it says that he is exalted, and he set down the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, obviously, what happened in between his death on the cross, and him being exalted to the right hand of God. It was the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Now look at verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now the phrase, having become, in verse 4, and in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that refers to an event. In other words, something happened so that the son became superior to the angels. Now the question is, what event is he referring to? We know that Jesus says in Hebrews 1, verse 2, is the creator. He has always existed as the Son of God. But there was an event, the writer says, in which he became superior to angels. So what is that event? Well, the event that the writer is referring to, now think about this, is it when he became a man? Is it at his incarnation? And the answer is, of course, no. 
Yeah, the angels worshiped him because God had entered the world that time, but that's what we call the humiliation of Christ. It was utterly humiliating for God to become a man. So if it's not his incarnation, what's, when did he become superior to the angels? Obviously, it's his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of God. Now, Paul uses this same verse, Psalm 2, where it says, you're my son, today I've begotten you, in reference to the resurrection here in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 35. Just walk, follow along here. Paul says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, verse 33, this he has fulfilled to us by their children, by what? Raising Jesus, the resurrection. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There it is, the same verse that the writer of Hebrews is using, Paul uses. Verse 34, another reference to the resurrection. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Now to be sure, Jesus Christ became a son at his birth. He was begotten, but he was also, if you remember from last week, declared to be the Son of God in his resurrection as well. So Jesus is not only a son because he was virgin born into humanity, but he was also because he, a son because he was begotten again from the dead. It's a little complicated to understand, but the context rules in the interpretation of this passage in Hebrews. So again, Jesus is a son in his birth, his incarnation, when he became a man, and in his resurrection. He was declared to be a, the son of God. So as to the question that the writer asks, you're my son, today I've begotten you, we understand it this way in light of the context of, the, of it being a reference to the resurrection. To what angel did God ever say, I raised you from the dead, be exalted to my right hand. And of course, the answer is, to no angel did God ever say that, because the Son is superior to angels. Let's look at verse 6. He says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, you might remember from last week that the firstborn refers to a, a position or a rank. And Jesus' rank as a preeminent one is dependent upon his resurrection from the dead, i.e., he's the firstborn from the dead. And in both Greek and Jewish culture, the firstborn was a son who had the right of inheritance. He was not necessarily physically the firstborn. Do you remember the story of Esau and Jacob? Esau was the firstborn physically, yet it was Jacob who was the firstborn who had the inheritance. Now, since the context of Hebrews 1 is, again, talking about the Son being superior to the angels in light of the resurrection and His exaltation, we understand verse 6 like this. And again, it says, let all the angels of God worship Him. Holy angels are bound to worship the Son because He rose from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of God 
of God and is therefore superior to them. Now, here's the question. If the Son of God didn't rise from the dead, let's suppose that that happened. He didn't rise from the dead. Who will the angels worship? They don't have a sovereign. They don't have a king or a monarch. And consequently, they have nobody to worship. That's why it says in verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a flame of fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, the Son is the creator of all things, including angels. Verse 7 is a reference to Psalm 104. Again, look how it describes angels. They're doing the bidding of God as wind and fire carry out the will of God on earth. But also, what are angels called? Servants, it says. And as you know, as well as I do, servants need a master, i.e. a sovereign or an authority over them. And again, if Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the dead, they have no such master, no such authority over them. But look at what verse 8 says, the contrast here. But of the Son, what does it say? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, the writer of Hebrews calls the Son God. And what does he have? He has a scepter, a throne, a kingdom. He is the sovereign, the monarch, the ruler, the authority, the king. And the angels are only servants. And so we're beginning to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects holy angels. But it continues. Look at verse 13. And to which of the angels has the Father ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And the answer is, to no angel did he ever say that. But who did he say it to? Who sits at the right hand of God? It is the Son. And why did he say it? Because the Son was resurrected from the dead. Everything is under the control of the Son because of his resurrection. And now verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, notice the contrast. The Son is superior because he sits at the right hand of God. But angels are called servants. The ministry of angels is to serve their sovereign, their servants of God, and to serve the saints of God. I found this story that I want to briefly read to you. It's by Pastor Rob Morgan. It's of the ministry of angels to saints. He writes this, one of the most overlooked and yet most powerful verses in the Bible about the ministry of angels is Luke 16, 22. This is our Lord's story of the rich man and Lazarus. You may remember that story. A Lazarus was a beggar on the streets, and the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, there are so many verses in the Bible designed to take away our fear of death, 
But this is one of the greatest ones. What happens at the moment of death? Now, we don't enter that tunnel alone. We don't traverse that shadowy valley alone. Angels are dispatched. And they meet us on this side and carry us to heaven. And that is a nice thought. We are escorted, ushered, accompanied by angelic escort into the presence of our Lord. I'll never forget, he writes, visiting a dear old saint who called me from her deathbed. I arrived shortly before she died. She was barely able to speak. And I said, Mrs. Frazier, I'm here. You called for me. This is Rob Morgan, your pastor. Oh, yes, Brother Morgan, she said. I called for you because I want you to tell me who these men are that are with me. Well, what men? Well, she replied, these two men in white who are standing at the foot of my bed. I said, there's no one here, Mrs. Frazier, except you and me and the nurse. Oh, but I see them. What should I say to them, these two men at the foot of my bed? I then felt that I was in the presence of angels. And I replied, just tell them that you belong to Jesus. And that's exactly what she told them as she passed away just a few minutes later. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Folks, if there's no resurrection, angels have no sovereign to serve. If there's no resurrection, there are no saints because there's no salvation. Are you beginning to see now how the resurrection affects holy angels? Now I want to show you how the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is the fun part of the sermon for me, affects fallen angels. Let's go ahead and let's talk about the resurrection repercussions on fallen angels. Now we're going to go through a lot of verses here, and hope you're able to understand me as I explained a very complex chapter in Hebrews chapter 1. Let's talk about the impact of the resurrection on fallen angels, on demons, what do the scriptures tell us? Well, in Colossians 2.15, it says this. He, meaning Jesus Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and there's that phrase again, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, just so you know, Colossians 2 verse 14 talks about canceling the record of debt against us through the death of his son on the cross. Now, verse 15 tells us, what happened on the cross. And what does it say? Well, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. And of course, that's referring to those fallen angels. But he didn't just disarm them. He disarmed them, it says, publicly by triumphing over them. And the question is, who were these rulers and authorities? Of course, it's referring to Satan and his demons. And they wanted nothing else but to destroy the very Son of God. They wanted him to die on the cross, and the weight of bearing our sin was too great for him that he would literally be crushed on the cross and not be able to raise 
or to be risen from the dead. He would stay in the grave. But we know that in the cross, Jesus Christ triumphed over them. Well, how did he do that? Well, this is what Hebrews 2, verse 14 tells us. What did he do? Well, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of those same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus destroyed Satan, destroyed him that had the power of death because of our sin. And that, of course, is the devil. Folks, the primary power that Satan has over us because of our sin is death. But what does the text say? Christ destroyed that when he came out of the grave, when he was resurrected from the dead. And it proved that he had power over death, that he could conquer death. But it doesn't just end there. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And I want to show you what happened at the very moment of his death. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. It says this, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So in other words, when Christ died on the cross, his physical body went to the tomb or to the grave. The stone was rolled in front. Remember all the whole story and so on. But his spirit is eternal. Every spirit is eternal, including Christ. Where did his spirit go? Well, look at verse 19. It says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So the spirit of Christ went to the spirits in prison. Now what's that referring to? Well, we get some insight here by Peter again in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Peter's talking about the same thing, gives a little more detail, and let me explain this, because it is, it is a bit confusing. It says, these spirits, these angels, were cast into hell. Now, that is not, that's a Greek word, Tartarus. It refers to the deepest abyss of Hades. When we think of hell in the New Testament, we think of a different Greek word, which is the word Gehenna, which refers to a place of fire, a torment. But this is a different place. This is the deepest abyss of Hades. Now, who are these spirits in prison? Well, they're bound fallen angels or bound demons. Well, which bound demons? Well, again, Peter gives us a hint. Look at verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So we're talking about the time of Noah and of course, we know that God wiped out the entire world except for the righteous seed or righteous line of Noah. So it's something with angels right around this time. If you go to Jude chapter 6, again, we can see the same similar thing. That these angels who did not stay within their own position or of authority, 
And again, what are they called? Rulers, authorities, power, and dominion. But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, who are these angels? Who are these fallen angels? Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Remember Genesis 3.15 from last week? The curse given to the serpent, to Satan, at the fall of man. Again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So from the woman, from Eve, is going to come two lines of people. A godly line, sons of God, and sons of Satan, or sons of the devil. And there's going to be a conflict between the two. Now, Satan understood that a redeemer would come through the godly line. A God-man would eventually arise and save the people from their sins. So what did he try to do? He wanted to prevent this. And so he tried to pollute the line of men, both godly and ungodly. We find this here. And just just chapter Genesis 6, 1 through 8. I'm going to read this to you. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, which is what they were called to do, we were multiply and fill the earth, daughters were born to them. The sons of God, this is fallen angels, saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Free his flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And of course, Peter references this in the time of Noah, who was the only righteous man on the earth at that time. So what happened? Well, prior to the time of the flood, these fallen angels, these demons, they committed a great sin. They cohabitated with humanity, to thwart the coming of God incarnate. And of course, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. They were trying to pollute the line of men. So what did God do? He bound these evil spirits, these fallen angels, in chains in Hades, to the deepest parts of the abyss of Hades. And what did Christ do? Let's go back to the cross. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18 that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, some versions may say he preached the spirits in prison. That's a little misleading because it just simply means he proclaimed or he made an announcement. Well, what did he proclaim to them? What did he say to these fallen angels in Hades? Well, let's go back to Colossians 2.15. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ publicly proclaimed 
to these bound demons his triumph over them. He went down there, and I believe he said something like this. You may think that in my death this is a defeat, but it is in fact a victory. Watch this. And he was resurrected by the power, by the will of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he, his spirit goes back into his body. Physically, he rises from the dead, proving he conquered death. In fact, I even think, as some others do, that that was the, probably the last thing he did right before his resurrection. So sometime between Friday and, and, and Sunday morning, he goes and he, verses, eight, or verses 21 and 22 of 1 Peter, he says this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is resurrected from the dead. That's what he announced to them. You thought you defeated me, but I'm victorious. And he proves it by being resurrected from the dead. He confirms his power over death. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father where all holy angels and fallen angels are subject to him. So he began to understand the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only on the Godhead, but on angels. One final verse. I think that when you understand what I just shared with you this morning, it just enhances this verse so much more. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know why demons can't separate you or me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He reigns over all angels, holy and unholy. He is their sovereign Lord. How wide-reaching are the effects of the resurrection? It impacts God. God the Father's character is vindicated. He proved to be faithful and true. He resurrected His Son from the dead, keeping His promise. The Son is the preeminent one, ranks as the preeminent one in all things because of his resurrection. He's declared to be Lord and the very Son of God because of his resurrection and the Holy Spirit. He comes because the Son went to the Father and he convicts believers of sin and he guides, or convicts unbelievers of sin and guides believers. All of this is because of the resurrection. Jesus Christ, because he was resurrected from the dead, is your sovereign, he's my sovereign, he's the sovereign of all angels. I'd like for you this week as we close this sermon, just to meditate on Romans 8, 38 to 39. Neither death nor life, folks, 
nor angels, nor rulers. Nothing in all of creation is subject to the Son of God will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we come to you, we worship you, and we are grateful. Thank you for opening our eyes, for giving us understanding just of the impact of the resurrection. I pray that we would have a deeper appreciation for what you went through, that you could be resurrected from the dead. And the implications, as we'll discuss next week, just for us as your children, the lives that we are to live. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.